Blog Talk Radio. VIVLE and next show we got for you to start out the show is uh, John McCarter with 15 Words of Hope here on Tributory. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and the Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found God's Peace. It's all about helping you defeat anxiety and know true and lasting contentment. Request your free booklet by writing to Peace at gty.org. That's P-E-A-C-E at gty.org. Offer good in North America and Europe through June of 2018. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time. Here's grace to you, Bible teacher John MacArthur. The verse that we're going to look at is 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says this, 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Bible makes it clear, first of all, that all people are sinners by nature and by action. In fact, all people are sinners from birth. And thus, all people are born alienated from God, who is holy, cannot look upon sin, cannot fellowship with sinners. That alienation, because of sin, prevents us from knowing God. He is too perfectly holy to have anything to do with sinners except to reject them. Now, the result of that rejection, the result of that alienation in time is godlessness. The result of it in eternity is hell. So this alienation into which every human being is born is indeed a serious issue. It means that everybody lives their life without God and if they die in that condition, will spend their eternity without God in torment. Now, that kind of reality proves that the most deadly virus in the world is not the HIV virus. It is the SIN virus. Like the HIV virus, it kills everyone it infects. Only unlike the HIV virus, it infects everyone. It kills not just in time, but in eternity. It kills not just physically, but spiritually. There is no cure for the HIV virus, but thankfully, there is a cure for the SIN virus. In fact, God has made it possible for sinners to be cured so thoroughly and completely that they can be reconciled to God and have eternal fellowship in His presence. And that is the good news. That is what Christianity preaches. That's the gospel. There is a cure for the SIN virus so that the hostility between people and God can end now and forever, and sinners can be reconciled to holy God. In fact, if you look back at verses 18, 19, and 20, you see several times the word reconciled in one form or another. Verse 18 says, God who reconciled us to Himself. Verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. And at the end of verse 20, we call on sinners to be reconciled to God. This is the good news, friends. This is the great news that you don't have to live godlessly in time and you don't have to live godlessly in eternity. You don't need to suffer through this life without God and to suffer eternal torment without God in the life to come. Reconciliation is possible. But that brings up the question, how? 
The Apostle Paul has been talking about the ministry of reconciliation. We have been reconciled to God, and now we preach reconciliation. He mentions the ministry of reconciliation in verses 18 and 19, and then in verse 20 he mentions it by saying, we are ambassadors for Christ. We go out and we preach to sinners that they can be reconciled to God. That's our ministry. That is the good news. But the question then comes up, how can that be? How can such a re reconciliation take place? How can an absolutely and utterly holy God, who is infinitely pure and perfect, ever be reconciled to sinners? How can He do that, who is too pure to look on sin or to fellowship with transgressors? How can God satisfy His just and holy law with a condemnation of sinners by full and deserved punishment and still show them mercy who deserve no mercy? How can God end the hostility and how can He take sinners into His holy heaven to live with Him forever in intimate communion? How? How can both justice and grace be satisfied? How can love toward sinners and righteousness come together? To put it in Paul's words, how can God be just and a justifier of sinners? The one verse I just read you explains how. Fifteen Greek words. And these 15 Greek words translated into English carefully define and perfectly balance the mystery of reconciliation. They show us the essence of the atonement. In fact, in the one verse that I read you is the heart of the good news. In that one verse is the most powerful truth in Scripture because it embraces and explains how sinners can be reconciled to God. Here is where the paradox of redemption is resolved. Here is where the mystery is solved. Here is where the riddle is answered. Here is where we find how holy justice and perfect love can both be satisfied. How righteousness and mercy can embrace each other. And the truth of this one brief sentence solves the most profound dilemma of how God can reconcile with sinners. Well, needless to say, having said that, you are aware that there's a lot in this verse. We have to search carefully through this cache of rare jewels and stop to examine each one of them with a magnifying glass in order to understand the richness. Now, as we look at this verse together, I want to point your attention to four elements, four features of the text that unfold its significance, the benefactor, the substitute, the beneficiaries, and the benefits. That really sums up how God can reconcile sinners. Let's start at the beginning, the benefactor. The verse begins, He made. Stop there. Now, if you're a Bible student, the first question you're going to ask is, to whom does He refer? The answer comes quickly. Look one word back at the end of verse 20, God. God is the antecedent. 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. The point is, it's God's plan. He's the benefactor. God is behind the whole reconciliation plan. He designed it. He worked it out. He brings it to fruition. It is His plan. This is a very crucial perspective, and you'll see why as I comment on it. There could be no reconciliation unless God initiated it. There could be no reconciliation unless God activated it. There could be no reconciliation unless God applied it. He has to design it, and He has to execute it. It cannot come from any human source. Nothing man could do, nothing man could not do, could produce reconciliation with God. It isn't anything we do or don't do. In fact, all of our efforts in the religious realm amount to filthy rags, the Bible says. The world is literally filled with religion, and all of that religion apart from Christianity is man producing a plan with the aid of Satan in which he can initiate reconciliation with God. That is the fatal flaw of all world religions, no matter what name they come under. Romans chapter 3 says, verse 10, there is none that does good, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. Nobody. Absolutely nobody. Now, you would think if there was anyone who could have devised the plan most aptly and pulled it off, it would have been the Jews, since, after all, the Jews were the people of the true God, Yahweh, Jehovah. And God gave to them the law and the prophets and the covenants and the adoption and all of the things that Romans 9 mentioned. They had the revelation. They had the Old Testament. And to them, even salvation was given. Salvation is of the Jews. Of them and to them came the Messiah. If anyone could have devised a system by which they could have achieved reconciliation, it would have been the Jews. But they failed and in Romans chapter 10, Paul comments on the failure by saying, My heart's desire and prayer to God is for Israel, for their salvation. They have not achieved it. They haven't achieved reconciliation with all their religiosity, with all that they received by way of divine revelation from God, because they believed that somehow this reconciliation depended on them. And therefore... They're not saved. I bear them witness, Paul says in verse 2, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So not knowing about God's righteousness, they seek to establish their own. That's what false religion is, in a word. It's the religion of human achievement. But they never can accomplish it, because the only way that reconciliation could ever occur is if God reached out to sinners, and He did. It was God who made him who knew no sin to be sin. It was God's plan. He designed it. He initiated it. And he executed it. 
So that Jesus went to the cross not because men turned on Him, though they did. Jesus went to the cross not because seducing spirits orchestrated the minds of the religious leaders of Judaism to plot His death, though they did. Jesus went to the cross not because an angry mob screamed for His blood, though they did. Jesus went to the cross because God planned it. God purposed it, and God designed it as the absolutely necessary means by which and by which alone reconciliation could take place. That's why Jesus said, I came into the world to do the Father's will. That's why in John 18, 11, He said, Shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me, meaning the cup of wrath? That's why in Hebrews chapter 10, the Lord Jesus is quoted as saying, A body thou hast prepared me, and I have come to do thy will, O God. That's why in Acts chapter 2, when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached to the population of Jerusalem, many of whom had been screaming for the blood of Jesus and been guilty of uh, calling for His execution, Peter says to that crowd, you have killed the Son of God by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. In other words, you did your evil deed but it was all in the plan of the Father. Only God could call the second member of the Trinity to become incarnate and come into the world and humble Himself and take on the form of a man and be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Only God could ask that of Him. Only God could design an atonement for sin that would satisfy His justice because only God knows what it takes to satisfy His justice. Only God knows what propitiates His wrath. We don't know. Only God could decide how His own infinite holiness, intense hatred of sin, and inflexible justice could be perfectly satisfied without destroying the sinner in that satisfaction. Only God could know what it would take to make a sinner acceptable to Him so that that sinner could escape eternal hell and live in the very presence of God in His own house. Only God could determine how the spiritual nature and the supreme authority and the unchangeable perfection of His law, which is holy, just, and good, could be completely satisfied and the lawbreaker completely justified and rightly and purely forgiven and accepted, though fallen, guilty, and depraved. Only God could bring all of those components to reconciliation. Only God knew what it would take. Only God knew how to solve the dilemma. Only He knew what would satisfy His righteous requirement. Only He knew how He could spend His wrath so that wrath was consummated. Only He knew what it took to bear the burden of sin, to endure the punishment of His fury. Only He knew. And so while the world may call the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ foolish, foolishness, it is to those who believe the wisdom of God, is it not? It may seem foolish to the world, but it is the purest, and profoundest wisdom that the infinitely holy God could devise a plan consistent with His infinite holiness to reconcile utterly wicked sinners.
Only God. So God is the benefactor. God is the benefactor. He is the one who made the plan. He is the one who must execute the plan. That is so important, beloved. Absolutely important. It all flows out of this great reality. God so loved the world, right, that He gave. And that is exactly what Paul says in different terms in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died in our place. It all came out of God's love. While we were enemies, verse 10 says, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. And God initiated it because He loved us. God, Ephesians 2, 4 says, who is rich in mercy for the great love wherewith He has loved us, has granted us salvation. God loves sinners. That's why in Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Only God knew what the qualifications were. Only God could qualify us. He was the only one who could know the standard. And thanks to Him, for He delivered us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is exactly why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It was the Father who chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. It was the Father who predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ. Everything is through the praise of His glory. It is He who freely bestowed on us salvation in the Beloved, who gave us redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, etc., etc. It was the Father who designed to lavish on us all wisdom and insight and all riches of grace. Listen, this is very different than the religions of the world. The religions of the world basically operate on a premise of fear that God is an angry, hateful or indifferent God who could really care less about the prosperity of beings who grovel around underneath Him in this world. And so the goal of most all religions is to somehow appease an otherwise hostile and angry God. Somehow they have to devise a system if they're going to be reconciled to God so that He doesn't crush out their life and punish them eternally. They're going to have to appease this God. And so they are busily inventing systems of appeasement by which through certain religious ceremonies or through certain religious duties and actions or certain good works, they can somehow appease this deity and somehow hold back His deadly fury. On the other hand, Christianity proclaims a God who loves, who loves so much He is a Savior, God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We have a God who doesn't hate, but a God who loves sinners and has Himself designed a way for them to have fellowship with Him forever and ever. We don't have to appease God. God loves the sinner, and God in His love provides the sacrifice and wonderfully and graciously and freely and magnanimously and eagerly offers the gift of forgiveness. 
This is the good news. The good news is you don't have to appease God. The good news is you don't have to figure out a plan of, rec uh, of reconciliation. The good news is you don't have to somehow work out your own righteousness. The good news is God is the benefactor. He knows what satisfies His righteousness and His holiness. He has effected that satisfaction. The price of sin has been paid, and He now offers you forgiveness and reconciliation. That's the gospel. Now, what did it take? It took death. Because as it says in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 18.20, the person who sins will die. As it says in Romans 6.23 in the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. God knew what the requirement was. The requirement is death. And God made that abundantly clear throughout the whole Old Testament economy because uh, the Jews spent most of their life, of course, either coming from or going to a sacrifice. They had to continually massacre animals, millions and millions and millions of them, to deal with sin, to show the people how wicked they were and how sin required death. It wasn't that those animals took away their sin. They didn't. They couldn't. But what they demonstrated to the people repeatedly was that the wages of sin is what? Is death, 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 death. And every time they would sin, it was back to another death, back to killing another animal. And they were wearied of that and longing for the ultimate lamb who once and for all would take away the sin of the world and end this carnage. The animals were symbols that God's law can only be satisfied through death. It made the people long with all their hearts for a final substitute. A final substitute. Well, the Father sent one, and He didn't come reluctantly, not at all. He said, no man takes my life from me in John 10. I lay it down of myself. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. He willingly did not hold on to what He had a right to grasp, but let go of it and condescended to die. So if there was to be reconciliation, the plan had to come from God. He had to initiate it. He had to design it. He had to execute it. Second thing you see in this text, first the benefactor who is God, second the substitute. And the substitute is identified. He made him who knew no sin. That's the identification of the substitute. Who is it? Him who knew no sin. Let me tell you something, folks. That narrows the field to one. Him who knew no sin, who's that? It's not a human being, for there is none of them who is righteous, no, not one. They've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. There's no human being who qualifies. Who is the one who knew no sin? Who is this one? Who is the one who can bear the full wrath of God against sin for somebody else because he doesn't have to bear it for himself? See, no sinful person could be a substitute. No sinner could die for another sinner because he'd have to pay the penalty for his own sin. There had to be a sinless offering. And it had to be a human being 
because it had to be man who dies for man. But it, it couldn't be a sinful human being, or he would have to die for his own sin and couldn't provide atonement for somebody else's. So it had to be a sinless man. Well, the only way to have a sinless man was to have a man who was God, because God alone is sinless. So if you're going to have a sinless man, you have to have a man who is God. And that's exactly what God designed, that the second member of the Trinity, sinless and perfect, equally holy with the other two members of the Trinity, would come into the world in the form of a man. He was not to have a human father. Joseph was not the father of Jesus, and Joseph knew it. Joseph had never known his wife in a conjugal way. He found out that she was with child. He couldn't believe it. And then the angel said, that which was conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit. So that Jesus had a human mother that he might be a human, but God was his father so that he was the God-man, the sinless human being. The Old Testament pictured that because when the lamb was selected, it had to be a lamb without what? spot and without blemish. It had to be a perfect animal without a mark, picturing the real substitute who would be perfect. A man to die for men, God to be sinless, so that indeed He could be a substitute. In Revelation chapter 5, there is a marvelous picture and it points up the fact that no one is qualified except Christ. In Revelation chapter 5, we go to heaven and we're in the throne room of God. And God is on the throne and in His hand He has a scroll sealed with seven seals. This is a title deed to the universe. This is looking at the future when God gets ready to take His universe back from Satan and sin, from the one... Lucifer, who fell and usurped the rulership of this universe. And so God is holding in His hand, as it were, in this vision, the title deed to the universe. Verse 2, John is watching in his vision. He sees a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, and the angel says this, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And verse 3 says, No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. There wasn't anybody. There was not one individual in the created universe, man or angel, who could step forward and execute the contents of this book. No one. And John began to weep. No one to take back the universe from Satan. Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Somebody is worthy. Who is it? The lion from the tribe of Judah. That's a, that's a man out of the tribe of Judah. That's a Jew from the tribe of Judah. But he's also the root of David, not the branch not something that came out of David, but what produced David. 
That's God. And in what form is He? Verse 6, a lamb slain. There's only one who is worthy to take back the universe, and that is the one who was born a Jew in every way human, but the one who was God, the very source from which David came, the one who was the slain lamb. God then had to create a unique virgin-born God-man in order to be the substitute. Because the plan demanded a substitute. Justice had to be satisfied. The law had to be vindicated. Wrath had to consume. So, Paul says to the Galatians, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Wow. Why? In order that He might redeem those who were under the law. Galatians 4, 4, and 5. Jesus Christ, then, is the one who knew no sin. Him who knew no sin is Christ. And the testimony of everyone historically affirms that. You can go to the pagan world. Start there. Jesus says in John 8, 46, which of you convicts me of sin? Silence. And there's still silence. Hear Pilate in Luke 23. Pilate, cynical, vicious, cruel, ungodly, pagan, idolatrous. Pilate said in verse 4 of Luke 23 to the chief priests and the multitudes, I find no guilt in this man. Verse 14, again he said it, I have found no guilt in this man. Verse 22, and again the third time he said to them, why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt. Listen to the thief on the cross. We indeed suffer justly, he says. To the other thief, we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Listen to the testimony of the centurion who watched it all. In verse 47, certainly this man was innocent. It wasn't just unbelieving people who saw his perfection. How about the apostles? John, who was with him day and night for three years. John, who followed his every footstep and heard his every word and saw his every act and maybe felt his every breath as he leaned on his breast as often as he could. It was John who said in his epistle, 1 John 3, verse 5, in him there is no sin. And John said we were eyewitnesses of it. And then there was the writer of Hebrews who affirms the very same reality when he says in chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are tempted, yet without sin. And in chapter 7, the writer of Hebrews says he was holy, innocent, undefiled, and separate from sinners. And then there was Peter who preached in Acts 3, and he says of Christ, you have killed the prince of life, and he calls him a holy and just one. And then you remember it was Peter, especially Peter, who said of Christ that he was a lamb, First Peter 1.19, unblemished and spotless, 
who said of Him in chapter 2 of that same epistle and verse 24, He bore our sins in His own body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. But He, verse 22, committed no sin. And then in chapter 3 and verse 18 of that same epistle, Christ died for sins, the just for the unjust. Now the testimony of unbelieving men was of His sinlessness. The testimony of those who knew Him best was of His sinlessness. But there's another who gave testimony, and that testimony is indeed powerful. It was none other than God the Father Himself. At His baptism, recorded in Matthew 3.17, the Father said, This is My beloved Son in whom I am completely pleased. And at His transfiguration in Matthew 17, verse 5, This is My beloved Son in whom I am completely pleased. You see, the Father was totally satisfied with the Son. There was nothing in the Son that dissatisfied the Father. He was perfect, sinless. And maybe the greatest testimony of His sinlessness was the unbroken fellowship He had with God. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. He said that many times. He says that in John 10, verse 30. He says it in John 14, verses 30 and 31. He says it repeatedly in John 17. He says it in verse 11. He says it in verse 21, 22, 23. We're one, we're one, we're one, we're one. We're united, we're united that was the greatest testimony of his sinlessness, was that he had absolutely unbroken communion with God. Now, had he not been man, he couldn't be the substitute. Had he not been sinless, he couldn't be the substitute. So he had to be man, and he had to be God. Notice our text again. God made him who knew no sin. Here is the remarkable statement, to be sin. You see, He had to punish sin. But if He punished the sinner, the sinner would be destroyed in hell eternally. So He had to take the substitute and put Him in the place of the sinner and punish the substitute instead. He had to be sin. That phrase is very important, and I want you to grasp it. What does it mean that He was made sin? That's an astounding statement. What does it mean? Well, first of all, let me tell you what it doesn't mean, and you need to understand this clearly. It does not mean that Christ became a sinner. It does not mean that He committed a sin. It does not mean that He broke God's law. He did not do that. The Scriptures I've just read to you indicate that He had no capacity to sin. That's what theologians call the impeccability of Christ. He had no possibility to sin. He could not sin. He was sinless God while fully man. And certainly it is unthinkable that God would turn Him into a sinner the idea of God making anybody a sinner is unthinkable to say nothing of making His holy Son into a sinner. Well, you say, well, what does it mean then that He was made sin? Isaiah 53 
introduces it to us. Surely our griefs He Himself bore. Our sorrows He carried. Verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening that fell on Him was because of us. Verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He didn't die for His own sins. He died for what? For our sins. What it means is the Lord took all of the iniquity of all of us and it fell on Christ. What do you mean? It wasn't his sin? No. It was our sin. What is it saying? Simply this. God treated Christ as if he were a sinner. How? By making him pay the penalty for sin, though he was innocent. He paid the penalty. God treated him as if he was the sinner. More than that, God treated him as if he sinned all the sins of all who would ever believe. Is that incredible? Sin, not his at all, was credited to him as if he had committed it and paid the price. And he didn't. But it was credited to him as if he did. That, listen, is the only sense in which Christ was made sin. And the word is, He was made sin by imputation. Sin was imputed to Him. It wasn't His. He never sinned. But God put it to His account, charged it to Him, and making Him pay the penalty. It'd be like some, it would be like all the sinners in all the world charging all their sin to your credit card and you having to pay the bill. Imputation. Listen, the guilt of, of the sins of all who would ever believe God, all who would ever be saved, was imputed to Jesus Christ, credited to Him as if He were guilty of all of it. And then just as soon as God had credited to Him, God poured out the full fury of all His wrath against all that sin and all those sinners and Jesus experienced all of that. Is it any wonder at that moment he was alienated from God and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was treated as a sinner. He was treated as a sinner deserves to be treated with all the fury of just punishment. Let me go further. He was treated as every sinner cumulatively deserved to be treated. And all the fury was poured on him. He was personally pure. He was officially guilty. He was personally holy. He was forensically guilty. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Verse 10. Verse 10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. All right, you want to try to earn your way to heaven? You want to try to reconcile yourself? You want to keep certain works, do certain religious duties, subscribe to some moral law or ceremonial law, you want to achieve your own righteousness, you've got a problem. 
All of you who try to reconcile to God through works, through what you do, are cursed. Why? Because it says in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. You know why that curses you, that approach curses you? Because the first time you violate one law, you're damned. Just takes one. Cursed is everyone who doesn't keep all that is written in the book of the law. So if you're going to try to reconcile yourself to God through human effort, every time you try to do that, you put yourself under a curse because it only takes one violation. So the whole human race is cursed. And everybody in every religion on the face of the earth trying to achieve reconciliation by their own efforts is cursed. Now all this curse of iniquity has to be paid for. There has to be a penalty for this curse. So verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse by being made a curse for us. Wow. That's the point. He became a curse for us. He took the full fury of God's wrath on our behalf. God placed Christ in the path of the curse and trampled Him with exhausted judgment. And again, I remind you that it is imputation that is crucial to understanding reconciliation. He became sin by imputation. Our sin was imputed to Him. Follow this. Just as Believers become holy by imputation. You remember that? Being given His righteousness. Let me say it another way. Christ dying on the cross did not become evil like we are. Nor do we, by virtue of the cross, become as holy as He is. You say, well, what happens? It's imputation. God puts sin to Christ's credit, our sin, and puts Christ's righteousness to our credit. It's not that we are so righteous God is satisfied. It's that because the penalty is paid and the guilt has been met, that God can credit to us the righteousness of Christ. That's, that's the gospel. The only sense in which you are made righteous through justification is by imputation. And that's the same sense in which Christ was made sin. He is made sin because God credits our sin to Him. We are made righteous because God credits His righteousness to us. Listen, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian. I am not so righteous that as I am, I can stand before a holy God. Are you? I got a lot of sin in my life. And I would say if I got anywhere near God, what Peter said, depart from me, O Lord, for I'm what? I'm still sinful. But God looks at me and does not consider me on the virtue of my human morality. He considers me on the virtue of the imputed righteousness of Christ, which covers me. This is the point. Well... The benefactor is God, the substitute is Christ, and by imputation receives our sins and dies for them, taking our place. Thirdly, the beneficiaries, and these last points are brief. Thirdly, the beneficiaries. 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin, here it is, on our behalf. On our behalf. Who are we talking about, Paul? Who is our? Well, it's the same as the we in verse 20. We are ambassadors. It's the same as the, um, the us in verse 19. He committed to us the reconciliation ministry. It's the same as the us in verse 18, us who have been given this ministry. Who is this, our, we, us group? Well, they're in verse 17 described. Any man who is what? In Christ. Who is a new creation. Old things passed away and new things have come. There is a transformation. There is a new creation at salvation. There is. We are transformed. We are changed. But even with that change, we wouldn't have sufficient righteousness to satisfy a holy God. And so He has to cover us in the righteousness of Christ to make us acceptable until He can get us to glory and we'll be made righteous. And it is for us, us who are in Christ then, us who have been reconciled, that He died. He died in our place. The actual substitution in its efficacy was for believers, those who would believe. He died for our sins. He died for us. He died in our place. The final point, the benefit. And what did He provide us? In order that, this is the purpose of it, we might become the righteousness of God in Him. See, there's that imputation. What is the benefit? We become righteous before God. This is what justification does. And the righteousness that we are given is the very righteousness of Christ. Listen to what Paul said in Philippians 3.9. We are now found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, he says. Not some righteousness derived from keeping the law, but a righteousness through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God. Wow. It's imputed to us. He's holy. God imputed sin to Him. We're sinful. God imputes holiness to us. The very righteousness which God requires to accept the sinner is the very righteousness which God provides. When God looks at you, He sees you covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why all your sin is automatically forgiven in the eternal sense. Because Jesus already paid the penalty, right? God can't hold you responsible for your sin. Jesus paid the full penalty for it, took the full fury for it. You say, well, what about the sins I commit after I'm a Christian? Well, He died for those too because you weren't even born when He died. They were all future. In fact, He is the Lamb slain from before what? The foundation of the world, before even the creation. The plan was for Him to die for all the sins of all who will ever believe. This is the righteousness that Romans 3 talks about. It's the righteousness of God, verse 21, apart from the law. Verse 22, it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. And that's the key. How do you get in on this? Believe. Believe what? Believe that you're a sinner. 
Believe you're in a desperate situation. You're desperately alienated from God. Believe that you have no hope of reconciliation and you will in this life live godlessly and in the next life you will suffer eternal torment and believe all of that and then believe that God sent His Son into the world in the form of a man to die as your substitute and take your place and that He took the full fury of the wrath of God upon Him and believe that the affirmation that God's justice was satisfied was the fact that God raised Jesus, what? from the dead. And when God raised him from the dead, he was saying, I am satisfied. And then God exalted Jesus to his right hand where he sits at the right hand of God on the throne. And God says, when that was done, when he offered himself and satisfied my justice, I gave him, Philippians 2, a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee in the universe must bow. And every tongue must confess that Jesus is Lord. That's what you believe. That's the gospel. And when you believe that by faith, simply believing that, God in His mercy takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ and imputes it to you because your sins were imputed to Christ when He died on the cross. The Father knew you were there when the Son died. Your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, and the atonement that Christ made was for you. And you come to believe, and you receive the imputed righteousness. And then you live in this life with God in your life, and in eternity in the presence of God in absolute perfection. That's the gospel. That's Christianity. That's it. The benefactor is God. It's all His plan. It comes out of His love. The substitute is Jesus Christ who took your place, the perfect God-man. The beneficiaries, all of us for whom He died, those who will believe. And the benefit, you receive the righteousness of God imputed to you as if you were equal to Jesus Christ in holiness. And someday, you will be made holy. But until then, you're covered with the righteousness of God in Christ. And it becomes yours through faith. Believe. Repent. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we come to You at this time and ask that every one of us might look into our hearts and be sure that we have been reconciled to God. Thank You for giving all of us the ministry of reconciliation. Thank You that You have not only reconciled us, but called us to cry to others, Be reconciled to God. It is available. It is possible. God has made a way. And we cry that to sinners here this morning who have not been reconciled. And we ask, O oh God, that You would prompt their heart to believe and to repent, turning from their sin and saying, I want forgiveness for my sin. I want the hope of heaven. I want God in my life. I want to be reconciled. Oh, Father, I just pray that Your Holy Spirit will work that marvelous miracle of reconciliation in hearts today. We thank You for bearing our sin and for letting us bear Your righteousness. This is all overwhelming, and we are unworthy but grateful. Speak, Father, to those hearts who do not know the Savior, who have not been reconciled, and draw them to Yourself. And may they have confidence in the words of Jesus who said, Him that comes to me, I'll never turn aside. And we ask that sinners might come today and in faith embrace the righteousness provided for them by the One who bore their sin. We thank You in Christ's name.
Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website, gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. How do you want?
that was Walk With God by Goldfish. And now I'm going to play from, this is from what? WWTT, when we understand the text. How many times did, did Jesus clear the temple? Here, I'll truth be told you. After Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey's colt to shout of Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he went to the temple and drove out the merchants, overturned their tables, and he said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. All three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell of Jesus cleansing the temple after his triumphal entry. This would have been on the Monday before he was crucified on Friday. But the book of John records something different. It says Jesus cleansed the temple way at the start of his ministry, a few years before he was crucified. What gives? These are actually two separate temple cleansings. It's in John's story where Jesus famously made a whip of cords, which he used to drive everyone out and he overturned their tables. But it's in what Jesus said that we see the biggest difference between the two cleansings. In the first cleansing, he said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. But in the second cleansing, he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. In the first cleansing, the temple was his father's house. In the second, he called it his house. And rightly so. Jesus is God, and it has always been his house. But the second cleansing was right after the triumphal entry, announcing himself as king, that he referred to the temple as, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Jesus gave his life to purify for himself a people from every nation, that we might become a spiritual house unto the Lord, when we understand the text.
of chronology. This is Ken Ham, hoping you'll visit our life-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. Each year, fewer and fewer young people can answer basic questions like, where is Genesis in the Bible? What are the Gospels? Or what is sin? Even many children raised in churches don't have a basic understanding of biblical principles. I believe one way we can fight growing biblical illiteracy is by teaching the Bible chronologically. Teaching Jonah and the big fish one week and Jesus feeding the 5,000 the next makes the Bible seem like a confusing jumble of people and events. But the Bible shouldn't be confusing. When we teach the events in Scripture in the order they happened, the Bible comes to life and makes sense. Why don't you try it? Discover more about God's Word at AnswersRadio.com and plan your visit to our two themed attractions, the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter at AnswersRadio.com. Jesus Christ Superstar is a rock opera written by Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber. The musical has been popular ever since its debut in 1970. From Broadway to going on tour, several films, and a live concert version that aired Easter Sunday on NBC. In case the mainstream success of Superstar is not a dead giveaway, the theology is a blasphemous mess. It comes across as a story told from the perspective of Judas, who opens and closes the opera with the first and last numbers. But even Mary Magdalene refers to Jesus as just a man. There is nothing miraculous or even caring about this Jesus. When the sick come to him for healing, he gets angry and tells them to leave him alone. When his disciples ask him about the future, he's annoyed and says he doesn't know. At the Last Supper, he tells them, for all you care, this wine could be my blood. For all you care, this bread could be my body. In his prayer in the garden, Jesus says he's uninspired and doesn't understand his purpose. He says being a martyr would be better, so he tells God, take me now before I change my mind. And then he dies and becomes a superstar, but doesn't rise from the dead. 
As lyricist Tim Rice said, it happens that we don't see Christ as God, but simply the right man at the right time at the right place. The Bible says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, Jesus, to seek and save the lost and redeem them by his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. Whoever believes this gospel will be forgiven their sins and have eternal life. Whoever does not believe will not be saved, but the wrath of God remains on them. Accept no imitation when we understand the text. It all makes sense. This is Ken Ham, president of Answers in Genesis and the popular Creation Museum. Which came first, the Exodus or the Exile? Did David live before Daniel? Who was Isaiah's prophecy directed toward? So many believers, especially young Christians, know isolated accounts from scripture, but they don't understand how these events fit into the scope of history. So to them, the Bible seems like a jumble of people and events. But as we learned yesterday, when we teach the Bible chronologically, it makes sense. We've been designed to understand the world in a sequential order. So why don't we also teach the Bible this way? When we do, we can easily see that the events flow in a logical way. And we can see God's hand throughout history. Get equipped with answers to the questions people ask about God's Word at AnswersRadio.com and read a transcript of this program when you go to AnswersRadio.com. And this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the Not just because of what you do, but simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence, you are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance, you sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man, according to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan, I changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us, all that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust, shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is a mute. 
attraction in northern Kentucky. If you ask most people where we find Jesus in the Bible, they'll point you to the New Testament, such as the Gospels. But Jesus is the theme and focus of the whole Bible. Jesus is the scarlet thread woven throughout the Old Testament. It's here we see the unfolding of God's plan to rescue the world through his Son. What we learn about Christ in the New Testament fulfills much of what we read about him in the Old Testament. Seeing Jesus from the beginning to the end highlights that the Bible and history itself has one author and this author knows what he's talking about and will keep his promises to save his people. Praise the Lord. Learn more about Jesus, history and God's word when you go to our website at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or others like it at AnswersRadio.com.
He's always existed from eternity past and will always exist into eternity future. When we teach the Old Testament, we need to show that the whole Bible is about God's plan of redemption. It's all about Jesus. The gospel and the person of Jesus, the Messiah, are found all throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus isn't just the babe in the manger we hear about at Christmas time. Jesus is the eternal God who stepped into history as the God-man to die on a cross and be raised again. Want to listen to this program again, hear others like it, or view a transcript? Visit AnswersRadio.com and sign up for daily email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Thessalonians. One. 
Yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. But it ain't over. We just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up, stand up. If you truly love the son of man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, stand up. Does anybody love the son of man? Trust. Jesus is the king, so his people we will sing. And forever stay worthy is the land. With Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection More power than gravity, his knowledge and strategies Confound the academy, bow to his majesty He paid sin salary, took our blame on Calvary Those who love his name, spread his fame is the policy All eyes on the matchless price of his sacrifice Let's prize our master Christ and rise in the afterlife What, did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a rod or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes Who hate truth, the gospel is not fake news Sin, the gospel sweeter than it's ever been Ain't nothing changed, let us in, we got the medicine It's still human emergency, the serpent attack You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts Stand up, stand up If you truly love the Son of Man, trust Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive And his fame is gonna spread across the land What's up? Stand up, stand up Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing And forever stay worthy To my composition Lots of rhythm But not traditional Kind of different But God's consistent No contradiction My proposition 
he mocked and crippled his opposition. It's not some fiction, I'm spitting, the son of God is risen. And my incentive for godly living is I'm forgiven. Jesus came to unlock the prison, and through the spirit he brings a new birth like an obstetrician. At times I listen, a lot of Christian hip-hop is missing. The proper vision is my suspicion, we drop the mission. Not to this, but the word of God is it not sufficient. The doctrine is that the gospel fixes our shot condition. God the spirit supplies conviction through proper diction. Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens. A squad of Christians go out and witness that God's commission. Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing. And forever stay worthy is the Lamb. What's up? They want Jesus in the background like elevator music. But we gon' celebrate him, relegate him, we refuse it. They hate Christian hip-hop, I peep myself. They say we too redundant, well let me repeat myself. What I gotta say almost feels too real estate. Sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate. Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate. I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate. If the Father wasn't gracious, no sin in him. Again, he came straight blameless, no sin in him. Again, nothing's been the same since, no sin in him. Again, fakers lack his fragrance, no sin in him. This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus. Nah, we serve the rock, the harder than still Jesus. So how are we gonna be silent, let the world still Jesus? When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is gonna spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing. And forever stay worthy is the Lamb. What's up? Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. God, the truth, so we about to school you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest group. When Christ put us up from out the sewer, we don't have to doubt the future. Crafting our verses as we bask in his worship. You asking the purpose, partly to fetch cash from the furnace. Through Jesus' extravagant service, immaculate purchase. He was smashing the serpent, and we only scratching the surface. He's the seed of what you see in the womb of a virgin. The sun emerges in the manger while the angels serenade him. It's the birth of the Savior, the greater and the a man came as a lamb and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand. In the place of the wicked on the cross he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted just like the prophets predicted. He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and lay down his life to offer atonement. He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis of insufficient, the blessed, the glorious, splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend, independent of space and time, but presently present, suspending the heavens with speech. From coast to coast, he speaks peace to wind and seas, got heavenly hosts easily Posted on bended knees, controls the cosmos with the most authority. So we both in the most exalted King Christ supreme. He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer. No God is realer, yeah. When you're taking your time in the scripture, what you get is a prominent picture. See his light shining bright in the night, and his fright in the might, and a diamond in the mixture. See his name at all the renown, though. When he came for the lost that he found, though. He was tamed and floss all around, but remained for the manger, the cross, or the crown. Yo, Satan had a shirt hold on him. Fight for the rope, but open in. All to the eyes of the S to the E to the end. That's what we hoping in. Risen on his spell check, the risen king can rinse clean the most rebellious. I was hell 
around, word is born. I'm a bond servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout, I was fought with a price. We got a hope that won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth's sinking. We are clinging to the promises that God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven on earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly proportionate. Everything that orbits around his glory subordinate. He is the most excellent one. Intrinsic, infinite son. Preeminent, the name par excellence. Prenom, phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon. You see the fiber of cosmology. The abba of astronomy. He's potter, we are pottery. It's shocking Jesus died for me. The father, he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey. From sovereignty and lottery to poverty and robbery to resurrected bodily apocalyptic prophecy. He's stopping all the mockery and scholarly snobbery that don't acknowledge him properly. You ought to be on bended knee before the preeminent. It's awfully arrogant to reject him to your detriment. Study the development from Old to New Testament. You'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age. It's relevant. Crisis on its center stage. Forget religious sentiments that center on man. But something less is what you're settling. He is the most excellent. Exercising benevolence and blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance. Yeah. The sin of sinners that separated and segregated that severed the relations between man and his maker and placed Christ on his costly cross and compensated his life, death, and resurrection emancipated and gave us freedom from it all, freedom from the effects of the fall, freedom from Adam and Eve and the garden of Eden and from the law. So the saints stand and applaud his grace and glorious cause with hands raised, praising his name, singing glory to God. <laughs> Blessed assurance, Jesus 
Best. 
best. Oh, I'll do my best for you. We kick it old school. 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 Come on, come on, don't miss the latest craze. Hit it for a minute, then it's on to the next phase. Easy come, easy go, the marketers will hack it. The only change that comes, winds up in a pocket.